Well, good morning, 11 o'clock. How are you guys this morning? Good, good, good. Hey, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you like survived Rainocalypse 2016 and uh, you, you made it through the river that is our parking lot. Congratulations. And actually, it stopped raining, which is awesome because we're having a picnic right after this. So I hope to see all of you out there. Uh, it's going to be a little muddy, but that's all right. A little mud never killed anybody, so we're going to have a good time. So, hey, glad you're with us this morning. We are in the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2. We started last week talking about this book of the Bible, and, and here's what we said. We said that the book of Philippians is actually a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a place called Philippi. This would have been in the northern part of what is modern-day Greece. It was a Roman colony at the time. In around 52 AD, Paul would have traveled from Jerusalem on a missionary journey and preached the gospel. This is recorded in Acts chapter 16. And we see that there are different people that come to faith in Christ in Philippi. So Paul's able to establish a church in Philippi. And fast forward 10 years after that, Paul goes under house arrest in Rome because of him preaching the gospel. And while he is in Rome under house arrest, he writes this letter to the Philippians. And he encourages them to stay strong in their faith. And what we saw last week in chapter 1 is that adversity does not define us. Paul is in the midst of being in prison. He's in the midst of not knowing if he's going to get out of prison or he's going to die in prison. He's going to be executed. He doesn't know, but he still talks about joy and he still talks about hope. So it's not adversity that defines us, but it's rather our perspective in the midst of that adversity and our response to that adversity that reveals our identity, whether or not we're living a life of purpose and meaning with Christ as our foundation. And what we saw last week is that we can only have joy, this life of purpose, this life of meaning, this security and contentment in Christ in these times of trouble when we adopt an eternal perspective, when we know there's a God and we know that this God is in control over everything that happens to us in the midst of our circumstances. So he's going to move from that kind of 30,000 view uh, it's 30,000 foot view down to a more personalized understanding of how this practically applies in our lives. In chapter two, this is what he's going to focus on. Whenever people love humbly, whenever people love unselfishly, especially in the midst of strained relationships, they promote unity and they spread joy. Here's what I know about every person in this room. I don't know every person in this room, but here's what I know about you. You have a sphere of influence. You have a family, whether that's your mom and dad or your brothers and sisters or your spouse or your kids. You've got a family. You've got people that you're neighbors with. You've got people you go to school with. You've got people that you work with. That is a sphere of influence that God has given you for a reason and a purpose. Those relationships in your sphere of influence did not happen by accident. God has given you the job in your sphere of influence to live for him and be an agent of his love in the midst of those. Here's something else I know in the midst of that. A lot of those relationships are strained. A lot of marriages are strained. A lot of friendships are strained. A lot of workplaces are, are, are not exactly the best places to work because of tension, because of frustration, because of challenges. A lot of mother-daughter relationships or father-son relationships are strained. And so what's the solution to this? What we see is that Jesus gives us the example of what humility, obedience, and selflessness looks like. And not only that, but he gives us his spirit and he gives us his mind and that is everything we need to live a life of unselfishness that unifies the people around us. So I'm just gonna be honest with you guys. Paul is gonna start this chapter off swinging. There's gonna be some ouch moments today. Everybody say ouch. Um, but pain is sometimes the catalyst to growth. Ask any bodybuilder that. They'll tell you that's true. And it's something that we have to as we come into this. We're not here for me to just pat you on the butt and say, I'm okay, you're okay, that's why we're here. Let's go eat barbecue and everybody be happy. No, we're here because we want to live surrendered lives to Jesus. Amen? And so what I want to ask you today is we're hearing what selflessness looks like and what humility looks like and serving people looks like not to say, oh, that sounds like my brother-in-law. I'm going to mail him this podcast and I'll show him. Us to really... Ask God to examine our hearts and, and start with us as we get into this. So um, funny uh, that I'm teaching on this this week. I was studying for it at the beginning of the week and thought, hmm, I think I do this thing called selflessness pretty cool, and I'm, I'm pretty unselfish. And uh, then God's like, oh, really? Well, um, your kid's going to start teething this week. So that's exposed 
the darkness of my heart this week and the selfishness that I'm actually living in. And uh, we praise the Lord for instruments of sanctification, like eight-month-old teething babies. So glad you're here. We're going to pray, and we're going to dive right into this text. So join me as we pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us enough um, to go after our hearts. And you love us enough to not lie to us. You love us enough to tell us the truth about who we are and then offer us that solution that is yourself. God, we thank you that it's not us that fix ourselves. We thank you that we're not the answer to everything that's wrong with us, that you are the answer to everything that's wrong with us. And we thank you that today, right here in this place, right here this morning, you're going to give some people victory. You're going to change the dynamics of some tough relationships that people are feeling confused and hurt and broken and lost in. And so right now, we lift up our eyes to where our help comes from. It's from you and only you. It's a Holy Spirit, living breath of God. Be in this place, right here, right now, this morning. Breathe on your word. Let it bring forth life. We pray for every church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, that's having service this morning. We ask that you would bless their pastor, that you would bless all the people in attendance, and you would cause your church in Murfreesboro to unite on earth as it is in heaven. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here we go. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So starting off this section of the letter, what Paul is presenting to the Philippians is this idea that our relationships matter to God. And a truly pleasing God in our relationships looks like us being unselfish and treating others as we'd like to be treated. Jesus would say this again and again and again through the Sermon on the Mount and all through the Gospels. And if our relationship with Christ is truly as it should be, we will work to honor God in our relationships with others. I don't know if you've ever met somebody that just claims to be so super spiritual. It's like they almost float everywhere and they've got a direct connection with God and they're hearing things from God nobody else is and they're just so spiritual. But... um. Their relationships are a train wreck. Friendships are a train wreck. Their marriage is a train wreck. What Paul is going to say is, if this is real to you, if God is really working in your heart and you're really living out a life to honor him, that's going to manifest itself in the relationships you have with the people around you. Paul would say this to the church in Rome about the importance of this. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Christian, there should be nobody that you want to avoid in the grocery store because there's an offense in your heart towards them. There shouldn't be. If we're taking this serious, as far as it depends on us, we are to make peace with the people around us. Now, let's really unpack this. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, what does that mean? That means there's only like certain things that you're responsible for. You're only responsible for you. You're only responsible for what you can do and what you can say and how you can pray for that person, how you can be Christ-like. But at the end of the day, you've got to trust that God's going to deal with them and you're going to deal with yourself. But here's the thing. You have a responsibility. It's so easy for us to make ourselves into the victim when we're in a strained relationship and the other person to a villain. That's so easy, and most of the time we find ourselves gravitating towards that, but that's not what Jesus, and that's not what the New Testament says. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Notice he didn't say peacekeepers. Peacemakers are willing to have tough conversations. Peacemakers are willing to fight for the hearts of the people they love. Peacekeepers are passive. They don't like confrontation. They like to gossip about people behind their backs. And say, I'm just keeping the peace. That's not what we see in the Bible. It's possible. As far as it depends on you, we are to live at peace with everyone. It just got really quiet in here, so we're going to move on. All right. You guys still with me? I said it's going to hurt this morning. That's all right, though. We're going to get through it together. 
And he says this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, if there's any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, any affection and mercy, or other translations say tenderness and compassion. Well, what is he doing when he says all these if-then statements? Well, what he's doing is he's connecting the inward work of God in our hearts to the outward reality of our relationships. He's saying, if this stuff is going on on the inside of you, if you're receiving from Christ encouragement, if you're receiving from his love and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then practically apply that in your relationships with other believers. By being of the same mind, having the same love, sharing the same feelings and focusing on one goal. Now, he's not talking about like communist party conformity or matching track shoots for Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that when there's a group of people and everybody's focused on kind of themselves and their own individual agendas, and their own individual desires, and then you try to get these people together and say, now let's do something great, usually that doesn't work out too well because everybody is so focused on what they want. But on the other hand, if you have a group of people where the shared focus is oriented on following Christ and serving others, amazing things can happen. Because people aren't competing for, no, this is my agenda, this is my pet project, this is what I want. No, no, I've got this on the other side that's the opposite of that. No, we want the same thing and it's not ourselves. It's for the name of Jesus to be glorified and for the needs of people around us to be served. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Shouldn't have any part in the life of a Christian. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is a spirit of competition that manifests itself in actions grounded in a need to prove ourselves as somehow superior to those around us. So we walk in the room, we want to be the funniest guy at the party, we want to be the smartest guy in the room, our spouse is more successful than the people around, I'm dressing cuter than everybody here. And all of that is trying to somehow prove that we matter more than the people around us. That I knew about this band before anybody else did. A selfish ambition. Paul says, hey, I, you don't need to have that. True humility doesn't look like that. He says, do nothing from conceit. Conceit is this belief that we are somehow more important or that our needs matter more than the people around us. We work harder than the people around us, that our lives have been more difficult than everybody else around us, that we are somehow the exception to everything, that we are the star of our own story, that this is all about us. He says, hey, 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 any action grounded out of that will not be pleasing to God and loving to people around you. So do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. And that's hard. That's hard. If you're married, that's hard to see your spouse's needs is more important than your own. He said, look after others' interests, not your own. I know you've got interests. I know you've got needs, but it's not about you trying to get it for yourself. You serve the people around you and trust that God's going to take care of you. But in order to do that, this means we first have to die to ourselves. This means we have to be willing to sacrifice for others. This means we've got to put ourselves out there and trust that God is going to be our everything. And see, this is why this is so important. If everyone did this, if this wasn't just like cute Christianese, if we actually like put this into practice in our lives and in our relationships, and we had this true biblical spirit of humility where we did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we counted other people as more important than ourselves and the needs of others took precedence over our own, there would be no workplace drama. Here's what I know about your workplace and everybody's workplace in here. They're full of broken people that are sinners. Broken people that are sinners are constantly vying for number one. They're constantly putting their own interest ahead of anyone else's. And usually conflict in the workplace comes about because one person's pet project or agendas or needs or I got to get my break now and I don't care about your break. I got to get my break now and I don't want to work late because this other person's... All of that would be gone. Imagine if you were in a workplace where everybody said, hey, today is not about my needs. I'm going to serve you today. Hey, what do you need help with? It's crazy to think what could actually happen from that. If, if we put this into practice, there would be no family conflict. Usually in family dynamics, there's always this thought of I've got my needs and people aren't hearing me out. And man, I just feel when I'm in this person, they don't really care about what I want. And everybody's got their own thing going and if everybody came into 
family get together with, man, I'm gonna, how, what's going on in your life today? I'm not going to talk about me today. What's going on in your life today? Let's talk. All of that tension and all that frustration that causes so much conflict would be diminished. Here's one. Marriages would look a lot different. I talked to so many married couples that talked to me about their whole set of demands and their whole set of needs and their whole set of expectations, that that's on the forefront of their mind every time they interact with their spouse. What I need, what I expect, and what I hope for, and you've got to give me this. So one person comes to the marriage with their own set of needs at the forefront of their mind, and then the other side of that, there's someone else that comes into a marriage with their own needs on the forefront of their mind. And I'm not a smart man, but if two people come into a marriage with themselves at the forefront of their mind, somebody's needs are going to go unmet. Keep scratching our heads, wondering why so many marriages are crumbling, and it's because we've not taken this serious and died to ourselves and actually started looking like Jesus and serving each other and humbling ourselves before each other. So the marital strife that we see so many times often is a result of our own selfishness and unwillingness to listen and be there for that other person. And here's one we don't like to talk about, conflict in church. When I was in uh, Uganda a couple of weeks ago, we were having a session with these pastors about resolving conflict in the church. And somebody told a story about a church split between the older group in the church and the younger people in a church. And it got really, really nasty and split right down the middle between these two groups. And they were trying to figure out where it started. And as best as anyone could remember, it started at a church potluck when an older guy went through the line who was an elder and he felt he didn't get a good enough helping of beans on his plate. So he got mad and said, how disrespectful is that? And so he started getting all these old people said, hey, look what all these young people are doing, disrespecting me. And then word of that got back to the younger people and they said, that old fart, he doesn't need any more beans. We're not going to give him any more beans. That's ridiculous. So they got their group together and everybody started getting, and, and all of that could have been avoided if that guy in humility would have said, well, I'll go back for seconds if I want more. I remember taking some time to hear each other out. Hey, why are you so mad today? I know how I feel, but tell me how you feel. Well, let's, let's work at trying to figure this out and trying to strive for unity and love and humility. You guys still with me? Okay, no tomatoes have gone flying, so we survived that first part. Here we go. Verse number five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is one of the more difficult theological passages in the Bible because Paul talks about Christ emptying himself. Well, in that phrase, emptying himself, he uses this word kenosis in the Greek, and basically that's this theological idea trying to postulate and think, okay, what parts of Jesus's divinity did he actually empty himself of when he came to earth? Now, we know that Jesus was fully God and fully man, so Christ didn't become any less God when he came as a man, but he chose not to exercise and not to use some of his divine attributes. You see this in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. See, for God to become a man was humbling. The God of all creation, their angels circled his throne night and day, singing his praises. And he took on flesh and became one of us. He could feel pain. He could feel tiredness. He could have all the things that we go through. That was humbling. But Jesus even went a step further. He could have come as a king. He could have come as a political leader. He could have come in prestige and power, but rather he came as a servant. The creator chose to serve his creation. And 
John chapter 13, when Jesus gets up from the Passover meal and takes off his outer garment and gets on his hands and knees and starts to wash the feet of these disciples. This was a task that no self-respecting Jew would have ever done because that was considered too demeaning for a Jew to do that. But Jesus, the teacher, the leader of these guys starts doing it for his students. But not just that, the God of all the universe gets down on his hands and knees and starts to wash their feet in an exercise of humility and then says, this is how I want you to love each other. So in this section, Paul is saying, hey, I know you're probably not feeling great about being selfless and humble. You're not knocking it out of the park with that. But let's, let's stop looking at you and let's start looking at Jesus. Worship is forgetting about what's wrong with us and lifting up our eyes to see what's right with him. And when we meditate on his character, when we ask for his mind and his Holy Spirit to fill us, we begin to look more and more like him instead of staring at ourselves and beating ourselves up about how we're not doing it right. And he says, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, it's yours. It's yours, guys. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted in him for salvation, it's already yours. The question is, are you using it? Are you applying it? When you wake up in the morning, are you trying just to do it in your own way, in your own strength, and with your own interest at the forefront of your mind? Or are you leaning into his Holy Spirit and asking for his mind and his thoughts and his heart to direct your life? Jesus did not consider his own interest. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. I've come to do the will of the Father. So his own interest did not dominate his actions. He came as a supreme example of humility and love and selflessness. It says that he emptied himself. He assumed the form of a slave. He was a servant. No task was beneath him. What we see is that loving people, truly loving people, implies action, not just talking about it. Um, people in your life that you love need to hear you say, I love you. I never grew up hearing it. Well, get over it. Start telling them, I love you, because you're going to scar a whole other generation if you don't get over that. It's not about you. It's about them. But more than they need to hear you say, I love you, they need to watch you show it through your life. A true love is not just us saying I love you. True love is us showing that we love the people around us through our action, through serving them, through listening to them, through being there for them. So he emptied himself and he took on the form of a slave. But it says he was born in the likeness of man. That he came for us and he dwelt among us. John chapter 1 uses the phrase he came and tabernacled amongst us. It's an allusion to this this instance of, of God coming and his glory dwelling among the children of Israel. This is what John says Christ did for us. He came and he walked with us and he was there with us and he felt the way that we feel and he looked us in the face. And sometimes the best way to love someone is by being there for them. It's by being present, fully present. Your full, complete, and undivided attention that the most loving thing you can ever do for someone is to give them your full, complete, and undivided attention. Because that says to them, you matter more to me than anything else right now. So to that end, I think some of you know where I'm going with this, when you go out to dinner with your family and your spouse and your kids, leave your phone in the car. You guys awake this morning? Some of you go, leave my phone in the car, I can't. Yes, you can. The world existed for a long time before phones. You can. And I, I, just, I think that's like one of the most selfish things we can ever say to our kids. The most hurtful things we ever say to our kids is, hey, um, you're not as important to me as these uh, texts I'm getting from work. Hey, you're not as important to me as this um, email that somebody sent me, or, or even more ridiculous than that, these likes I keep getting for this Instagram photo I posted of you, you're not as important to me as that. We gotta be more present. We gotta be more intentional about giving people our attention because what we see is that Christ did that for us. He dwelt among us. He gave us his attention. And he humbled himself. He became obedient. Even though Jesus was equal to God the Father, he submitted to the Father's will. He became obedient. He humbled himself. See, true power never feels the need to prove itself in John chapter 13, the apostle John would say that Jesus, knowing who he was and knowing where he came from, got up from the table and took off his outer garment, began to wash their feet, that Jesus had received his identity. 
Because he'd received it from the Father. And we see affirmations of that throughout the gospel of God the Father showing up in his voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was okay taking the position of a servant. On the other hand, insecurity often drives us to do ridiculous things to try to prove our worth and try to prove our competence. And when I'm acting out of insecurity, I know it because I can just watch the words coming out of my mouth. I feel somehow the need to showcase my accomplishments. And I want to let people know, man, they've been on a cool trip. Well, that's cool. I, I also went on a cool trip and it was kind of cooler than yours. Right? And I, I sit there and I watch myself. Why am I saying these things? Like, I, it doesn't really matter if I've been on a cooler trip than they have. And it's not. Or here's another thing, like the humble brag. You guys have heard this before. Right? Whereas where you kind of brag about something you've done, but you try to make it to where you're not really bragging. Like, man, it sure is hot outside. Oh, man, I was really feeling it today when I ran 10 miles, right? Hashtag marathon training. Like, it's, it's this way of kind of <laughs> bragging about something we've done, but trying to make it seem like we're not actually bragging. This is close friends with a Facebook gloat, right? right here's another one. Like, we get hypercritical of everybody else's insecurities. As we struggle with our weight, we want to point out when somebody else has gained a few pounds. Because we think that's like even in playing field. If we even the playing field, but maybe that'll make up for this sense of insecurity that we have on the inside. And insecurity is this disconnect that we're really, really aware of between all that we are and all that we wish we were. And so when we're focusing on that, we get really critical of the people around us. But man, your identity is something that you receive from God the Father, not something that you achieve for yourself. No matter how many awesome vacations you go on, no matter how much weight you lose, no matter how successful you are in your business, if there is insecurity on the inside of you, none of those things are going to fix that. The only thing that can fix that is for you to receive an identity from God the Father that you are loved, and it's not because of anything that you've done, it's because of how great He is. But you're not defined by what people say about you or how much money you make, or what you own, that you are only defined by what he says about you. And he says, that's my son, and that's my daughter, and that should be enough for us. And when we get that, when we understand that, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, and we stop feeling the need to showcase our accomplishments, or a humble brag, or be overly critical of the people around us, that frees us up to love unselfishly. Jesus loved unselfishly, even to the point of death. See, becoming a man was humbling. For the God of all the universe to become a man, that's, that's got to be humbling. But taking on the nature of a servant was even more humbling. He didn't come as a king, he came as a servant. But still, Christ went even further. He humbled himself to the extent that he was willing to die for the sins and rebellion of the very people that he created. Like you might be willing to die for your brother. You might be willing to die for your spouse. You might be willing to die for a friend or a neighbor. Man, what about the serial rapist on death row? I don't think there's any person in this room that says, yeah, I'd be willing to die in their place. Here's what Scripture says. Scripture says, Christ showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, and we were walking in rebellion against the holy God, where we looked at his word and said, I know it says this, but I think I'm smarter than God, and I'm going to do my own thing. Christ still died for us. And went to the cross for us, not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but because he loves you. This is how he showed his love for you. And then Paul goes a step further. He says, even death on a cross. See, for us, that doesn't make a lot of sense. We say, yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. What did he do? For a Roman audience, this would have made their jaws drop open and them gasp. Death on a cross? A crucifixion was the most degrading kind of execution that could ever be inflicted on a human being. And it was a form of capital punishment reserved for foreigners and slaves that historians would give accounts of people walking to the side of crucifixion after being flogged by the Roman guard with their internal organs hanging out and them going septic and going into shock and seizing and becoming incontinent. And they would hang stark naked in front of their wives and their children and their family as birds would come and start to eat on their flesh and their exposed internal organs and nerves and Jesus went through this for you and for me. And then Christ died this death for you and for me as an innocent man. It was your sin that put him on that cross. It was my sin that put him on that cross. 
And he didn't have to die for us in this manner. He could have come in 2016 and be executed through lethal injection. But he did that for you as a public display for how much he loves you. And the lengths that he's willing to go to because he would rather die than live without you. He did that for you. He did that for me. And following his humility, following his obedience, God the Father exalted him to his rightful position of honor and glory. Through the miracle of resurrection from the dead, the Father gave new honor to the obedient, humble Son. That Jesus was present with God the Spirit and God the Father since the creation and before the creation of the world. And after he ascended into heaven, he then assumed his rank and dignity that he had before the incarnation. And he was seated at the right hand of God's throne. That's what it says in Hebrews 12, 2. And the result of his humiliation, the result of him humbling himself before God the Father is that God the Father exalted him. And following his obedience, the Father decreed that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And the emphasis here is that every creature in the universe, it says in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, will someday acknowledge Christ as the rightful king. It doesn't say they'll acknowledge him as savior, but it does say that they will bow the knee and say that he is king. I mean, if we think about that for a second, like those of us in this room that, that we're skeptics and we're thinking, man, I, I, I don't know if this is all true and I don't really want to submit my will to his. I guess one day we'll see if it's true or not. The Bible says you're going to bow a knee. And you're going to stand before him and look upon the one you've pierced and realize that he is the king, that all of this is true and that you will bow the knee. And all of us will bow the knee. The demons in hell and the angels in heaven and the people of earth, even the hardened skeptics will fall on their knees and acknowledge that he is everything he said is. is. The question is, are you going to do it willfully or are you going to be forced to your knees? Jesus said this in the gospel of Matthew. He said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted man in your life if you're exalting yourself if you're trying to somehow prove your worth and your value to the people around you if you're acting out of conceit and selfish ambition and insecurity scripture says it's only a matter of time before you'll be humbled before you'll be brought low but he says if you humble yourself you receive your identity from God the Father. If you know that you're loved and you're going to prove that to anybody around you, you just got to love them unselfishly without expecting anything in return. It says that God will exalt you. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. So when I ask you this morning and ask yourself this, are you allowing your own interest to dominate your actions? If Jesus allowed the will of the Father to dominate his actions, in your life, is it about you fighting for your needs and your interest and your desires, or are you submitted to something greater than that, something higher than that? The will of God. Because when our needs and our interests dominate our actions, this leads us down a road that we don't want to walk down. Is your insecurity, this, this awareness of the disconnect between who you are and who you'd like to be, is this driving you to try and prove yourself to the people around you? Is this driving you somehow to prove that you have value and worth and you think that maybe with that next pay increase or maybe that next promotion at work or maybe that, that applause, maybe that's going to make up for what I don't feel on the inside? Or are you resting in the fact that God the Father has secured your identity and that's all you're ever going to need? You can never achieve your identity. It has to be received. And are you humbling yourself? Or are you exalting yourself? Man, in your marriage, are you humbling yourself? Are you okay not winning an argument? Or do you always have to be right? Are you okay with letting your spouse's needs take precedence over your own? Are you going to continue to fight and fight and fight and fight and fight to be heard and fight to have your needs represented and continue to say, I'm the victim, they're the villain? Because God says, man, if you exalt yourself in that, you're going to be humbled. If you humble yourself, you're going to be exalted. All right, this last part, verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. I was a son with a father. He served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Ephroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul starts off the chapter talking about humility. He points to the humility of Christ, and he's going to end this chapter talking about humility in real life. What does that look like? And he comes out and says, guys, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To, to work out your salvation does not mean to earn your salvation. It means to apply your salvation. Because we know what God has done for us, because we know what he's called us to do, we begin to act like it. We begin to put it into practice. We begin to be active and participate in our sanctification. That is this process of becoming more like Jesus in our lives. And he says that you do this with fear and you do this with trembling. That fear and trembling is the appropriate response to the darkness and the power of sin. And then there's a healthy fear you should have of sin. If sin ever overcomes your life and you ever fall prey to sin, that you should have a healthy fear of that. Healthy fear is not a bad thing. I have a healthy fear of snakes. I don't have an irrational fear of snakes, Corey Trimble, but I have a healthy fear of snakes. <laughs> like if a snake's behind the glass at a zoo, I'm okay with that. But if a snake like somehow happens to slither out in front of me on the greenway while I'm taking a run and I jump four feet in the air and scream like a little girl, not that it ever happened to me last week, um, <laughs> I'm going to be a little bit afraid of a snake because I, have, I understand what a snake could do to me. In the same way, this is what Paul is saying. You should be able to understand, man, this is the power of sin. It's dark. It takes you further than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay and asks more from you than you ever want to give. So with fear and trembling, you're to look at the power of sin and say, man, God, help me not to go down that path. But you're also supposed to have fear and trembling at the even greater power of God's grace to save you from that sin. Man, if God had not gotten into my life, if God had not saved me, there's no telling where I would be today. So with fear and trembling, work this thing out. And he says, for it's God who's working in you. Paul makes it clear that it's only God who's the one that can do this work in us. It's not us working in us to make ourselves into a good person. You're not the solution. You're the problem. Selfishness is the problem. So what Paul is saying is it's not self that's going to fix you. It's not self-help. It's God that's the one that works in you. You are responsible in drawing near to him. That proximity matters. If you draw near to Christ, that he will draw near to you. If every day you wake up and you say, God, I can't do this on my own. It's you that's going to do a work in me. I need you today. And you draw near to him, he'll change you. But if you draw near to the ways of the world... I'll change you too. Look at this verse in James chapter 4. James writes, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? What does that mean? I mean, you can't have friends that are non-Christian. No, that's not what he's talking about. In, in the New Testament, anytime the word world is mentioned in that context, it's referring to the ways of the world, this broken system of thinking in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
what feels good, the lust of the eyes, what looks good, and the pride of life, status. You making much of yourself. He says, if that's what you're living for, if that's what you're after, and then you're trying to do this Jesus thing at the same time, then you're actually an enemy to God. Whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. If you've got one foot in serving the Lord and trying to do this thing of following Jesus and one foot in, it says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. But you'll never be truly content. You'll never be truly satisfied. Jesus said it this way, no man can serve two masters. You've got to pick one. Either you want to go down this path of chasing after what looks good and what feels good, what makes you seem awesome to the people around you, or you want to die to yourself and follow after Jesus. There's no in-between, because if you're right in the middle, you're unstable in all your ways. So draw near to God. He'll change you from the inside out. And then he says, do everything without complaining. Other translations say grumbling. See, constant complaining is a sign of a discontented, ungrateful heart that is focused primarily on self. Jesus said it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That constant complaining has absolutely nothing to do with your circumstances. A complaining heart will manifest no matter how ideal the circumstances, because it's not about the circumstances, it's about what's going on in the inside. When my wife and I um, first got married, we didn't have a lot of money. We were pretty poor and we were in debt up to our eyeballs. And so our honeymoon was in Arkansas. It was great, but um, it was in Arkansas, right? People asked, where are you guys going on your honeymoon? Arkansas. And it was no offense if you're from Arkansas. But um, man, we said, hey, you know what we're going to do? When we finally get out of debt, we finally pay all these bills off and we finally save enough money, we're going to take an awesome trip. We're going to go on like a second honeymoon. We're going to go on a cruise. It's going to be great. And so that's what we did, man. We worked our tails off, paid off all this debt, said, man, let's, we're going to go on this trip. It's going to be great. And so we went and I mean, all the food you could possibly eat and there's pools and there's hot tubs and there's shows every night. And we went to the beach and all these different places. We thought this is great. How could anybody ever complain? This is perfect. Guess what? I saw more people complain on that trip than almost anywhere else. We were going to a beach somewhere and the boat docked and we were getting off the beach and there was a towel station and they gave you, you free towels, right? You didn't have to like bring your own towels. They gave you a towel. And so we went to this towel station to get a towel and the guy says, we're sorry, sir. Um, we, we, we ran out of towels. There's another towel station on the other side of the deck. Just walk over there. And, and Jenny and I said, okay. So we started walking over. Well, the guy behind us, he said the same thing to you. And the guy says, no, I will not walk over there. You're going to bring me a towel. So the dude starts just railing against this, you know, I paid all this money for this, and you guys are treating me like this, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking like, man, how ideal is this circumstance? You've got all the food you could ever want to eat right in front of you. You've got pools, you've got hot tubs, you've got, I mean, everything you could ever ask for, and still you're finding something to complain about? Why? Because it's a heart issue. It's not a circumstance issue. It's not, it's not you trying to, if you finally get the ideal environment, then maybe you'll stop complaining. No. We only stop complaining when we realize that we have everything we could possibly ever need from Christ. And Paul pens this letter and says, don't complain while the dude's in prison awaiting his execution. If anybody has a right to complain, it's Paul, but he tells them, hey, complaining is not something you should ever do. Do everything without complaining. Do everything without arguing. See, constant arguing is a sign of a proud heart that cares more about being right than the truth of what is right. Somebody that's argumentative will find an argument anywhere. They'll say, no, I'm just, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm just a truth warrior. I just care about what's right. No, you care about being right. And most of the time where they find an argument is wherever or whenever there's an opportunity to prove their viewpoint or them as an individual is somehow better than the people around them. When they get a chance to somehow prove that they're smart enough to stump everybody else in the room, that's when the argumentative spirit comes out because at the root of that is pride. Paul says, I don't want you to do anything with complaining. I don't want you to do anything with arguing. He says, if... if if you do this, if you truly put this into practice, you proved yourself to be blameless and pure children of God. 
If you're never complaining, never arguing, never grumbling, he says you'll shine as lights in the world, that your life and my life, if we truly believe this, if we didn't write this off and said, yeah, right, I can never do that, if we truly made our life a life without complaining or arguing, then we will stand as a stark and distinct contrast from those whose only hope is found in the things of this world. The people around us will stand up and take notice and say, man, this guy's not complaining about anything. What's going on with him? How do we do that? How do we live lives where we don't complain, where we don't argue? My, my wife and I worked at a uh, Christian camp before we got married, and they um, did this 40-day no complaining challenge. I don't know if anybody ever heard of that. Handed you a purple wrist bracelet, and they said, all right, you can't complain for 40 days. If you do complain, you got to take this wrist bracelet, take it off your wrist, turn it inside out, put it on your other wrist. That proves to the people around you, hey, I complained today, and that means that your day starts completely over. So if you can make it one to 40 without complaining, you'll win the challenge. Guess how many people won the challenge? Zero. Because it's hard. We're doing it in our own strength, trying to not complain. It's hard to do. Paul says the only way we can do this is we hold fast to the word of life. But every morning when we wake up and we rest in God's word and we rest in the truth of the gospel that he became sin, that knew no sin, that I could become the righteousness of Christ and he loves me and he died for me and he gave me his spirit and I'm resting in that. I'm holding fast to that and that's what drives me and motivates me. That gives me direction, that gives me power to let God do his work in my life and keep me pure before him. That's the only way we can live the way he asked us. To live. And then he says, I'm, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering upon the altar, facing possible execution or even death in prison. Paul says to these guys, this is amazing. He says, this is an act of worship. <laughs> I mean, even if that happens, like we saw in, in chapter one, I get to be with Jesus. That's awesome. Now he's saying, if this happens to me, I want you to have the same attitude. I want you to rejoice because God's going to be glorified. And he ends this section talking about personal matters. He's talking about himself and encouraging them to be of good cheer in the midst of his trials and tribulations. But he talks about two characters, a guy named Timothy and a guy named Ephroditus. Timothy was apparently with him in Rome. Timothy is kind of his protege, the guy he's discipling, he's mentoring, he's pouring into. Timothy was apparently with him in Rome doing ministry and encouraging him. And, and Paul intended to send Timothy back to the church in Philippi soon. And Paul spends a moment bragging about Timothy. Timothy stood out as someone like Paul who had a genuine interest in the well-being of the people he was ministering to and serving. He ministered out of love. He wasn't trying to get something out of them. He, he ministered not from a need for self-ambition or desire to fulfill a need for affirmation or personal successes. Timothy was in it to serve them and to love them. So Paul points that out and says, man, he's not like the rest of these people. He, he's standing out as an example of humility. And then he talks about this guy, Ephroditus. And Ephroditus is being sent back to Philippi. Now, um, E, we'll call him E, easy E. That's kind of, his name's too long to fit in the PowerPoint. So E, he was most likely a leader in the church of Philippi, probably the pastor in the church of Philippi. And he'd come to Rome to deliver some sort of a financial gift for Paul. And he stayed in Rome to assist him in ministry. Now, Ephroditus' story is, is fascinating to me. Ephroditus was apparently homesick, but not only homesick, he was physically sick. But what's crazy is he was more worried over the reaction of family and friends, over the news of his illness, than he was the illness itself. It's fascinating to me. Paul talks about himself, this example of self-sacrifice, humility, and obedience. Paul says he's in prison because of his obedience to God but he's joyfully accepting it as a part of God's plan. He's refusing to complain even though he's in prison. And while he's in prison, he's not writing about how awful it is. He's not writing about how hungry he is or how terrible it is. He's focusing on the needs of the church. He's writing letters of encouragement to these churches he's planted even while he's waiting his own execution because his interest is on serving them, not his own interest, not his own needs. Timothy is committed to faithfully serving Paul as a spiritual son and humbly submitted to Paul's leadership. And he's committed not to his own needs, not his own wants, but rather the needs of the Philippians over his own. He's risking his life to travel from Rome to Philippi. It's not as easy in those days as hopping on a Southwest flight. 
probably three or four weeks, maybe sailing through the Mediterranean Sea or traveling over land. We see that Timothy is committed to doing that. And this guy, Ephroditus, risked his life and sacrificed financially and almost died. And why did he do this? Simply to encourage and be there for one of his spiritual leaders. And even when he was on death's doorstep, he was more concerned over the reaction of the Philippians to his illness than the illness itself. So when Paul says, do everything without complaining, I think he, he's like, got that. We tend to play the victim card often. Anything that happens to us, we see as an excuse to complain. We see as an excuse to get other people's sympathy and attention from other people. And Paul says, no, man, you got it wrong. It's not about your interest. It's not about you getting that from people. You do everything without complaining. You trust that God's going to exalt you if you humble yourself. And here are three examples of that in our lives. Man, the, the stakes of us getting this are really high. Us getting this part of our faith right are really, really high because you know and I know that all war, all hate, all fighting, all conflict, and all division, if you boil that down to its least common denominator, what they all have in common is selfishness. Easy for us to sit and point a finger at everybody else that's selfish, but it becomes a lot harder when we turn the mirror and we look at ourselves and realize we're just as selfish as the people that we're judging. Selfishness destroys marriages. Selfishness destroys families. Selfishness destroys careers. It destroys churches. Selfishness destroys lives. That's the biggest lie that the enemy is getting away with right now is telling people if you fight for you, you're going to be happy. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. If you put yourself first, you're not going to be happy. You're going to be miserable. It will destroy your life. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your family. This manifests itself in constant complaining. Always talking about what we don't have or how things are less than ideal or how we're the victim and everything that happens and constantly arguing where we pick fights with the people around us. Do you know it's okay to log on on Facebook and if somebody's got it wrong to just keep scrolling? Like no one ever appointed you as somehow the person that's supposed to fix everybody's viewpoints online? Like, anyway, we'll get off that. Um, Constant conflict. Like if these things tend to follow you everywhere you go and every relationship that you're in, maybe it's time for us to ask the Lord, God, what am I responsible for and how am I not stewarding this responsibility well? See, the only antidote to selfishness, the only thing that can fix this in us is sacrificial love. That's the only thing that can fix it. You can't fake love either. You can lie to somebody and say that you love them, but over time, your actions are going to prove that you don't. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The one who gave us the perfect example of sacrificial love has offered to walk with us and give us his mind and give us his spirit. We don't serve a God that died and ascended into heaven and says, hey, good luck, see you when you die. He says, no, I'm going to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, Jesus even said to his followers, man, it is better for you for me not to be here because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and that's better for him to walk with you, for him to transform your desires and lead you down the path of love. But this is all contingent on this question. Are you willing to die to your own interest and follow him in the path of sacrificial love? If you're here this morning or any service we do on a weekend for any other reason than to find out what it looks like to live a surrendered life to Jesus is Lord, I'm sorry, but you just wasted your morning. If you take this thing serious, you're going to start to have a funeral in your life where it stops being about what you want and starts being about what he wants stops being about your own interest and starts being about his heart. When Jesus said to his followers, take up your cross, he wasn't talking about a decorative little piece from Hobby Lobby. He was talking about an instrument of execution. It's your interest, that yourself, that you, that is the problem, not the solution, that has to die. 
Paul writes to the Galatian church, I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. I love this verse in 1 John 4. John says, we love because he first loved us. You want to love somebody? You got to know you're loved. You want to truly love your spouse the way you're supposed to love your spouse? Man, you got to know that you're loved from God. And then he says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. A lot of us read that and we give ourselves a free pass out. Well, I don't hate anybody, so I'm good. I mean, I have these strong feelings of unforgiveness and animosity towards that one person in my life that I refuse to speak to, but it's not hate. That's different. Let's be honest. That's hate. If you say that you love Jesus with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and yet there's hatred in your heart towards somebody that you can see, John goes so far as to say, man, you're, you're not being honest with yourself. You're kind of lying to yourself. You don't really love God like you say you do. How do we fix this? How do we change this? Is it up to us trying to fake it till we make it and grit our teeth and pull ourselves up our own bootstraps? Is that what it takes to live a selfless life and to be humble? No, he says we love because he first loved us. We've got to stop and receive his love. We've got to know that we're loved. Every single day we wake up and we realize that God went to a cross for us. God went to unbelievable lengths to have a relationship with us. And instead of us dismissing that casually, we receive it each and every day. And we live in it and we live surrendered lives to it. We receive him not just as Savior. We receive him as Lord. Receive him as our friend, as the lover of our soul, as our everything. Because that frees us up to not try to fill that hole in our spirit and our soul with the people around us. Like if you're trying to make your spouse into a practical savior, you will live your life offended and disappointed and hurt because they'll never be able to satisfy those deep longings inside of your soul. You need a God that can do that. You've got to receive his love in order to love the people around you, how he's asked you to love. We love because he first loved us. And then we die to ourselves. We die to ourselves. If we say that Jesus is Lord, here's what that means. That means that you aren't. If I say Jesus is my king, that means I'm not my own king. I am not the master of my own destiny. I've surrendered that to him. So when I wake up, it's not my interests that are going to dominate my actions. If I'm really doing this thing, how God asked me to do this thing, it's going to be his will through me. Let me be honest with you, man. You're going to have bad days. There are going to be days when you totally blow it. What God is interested from you is not you nailing it 100% of the time. He's interested in you consistently and faithfully coming back to the gospel and saying, man, I blew it today, but God, I know there's forgiveness. Let's try this again. And over time, him recreating you and him molding you and him making you as you follow his heart. How do we know his heart? From his word. From his word. When we follow his heart, it, it's that we look at his word and we don't see it as cute suggestions that belong on some cross-stitch piece that we frame in our house that we got from Hobby Lobby. When his word says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, we say, God, I'm going to trust that you're smarter than me and I'm going to ask for you to help me to put this thing to death as I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. This is real. This is the path to human flourishing and I'm going to trust that your word is true and I'm going to follow your heart. I'm going to stop pretending like I'm smarter than you and I know more than you do because you're God and not me. And we receive his love and we die to ourselves, and we follow his heart that frees us up to love people like we've been loved. That's what I want for you today. That's what he wants for you today question is, are you willing to do that? Would you bow your head with me? Look, I don't know the state of your relationships right now in this room. I don't claim to know that. You, you may have just 
an amazing marriage, you have, may have amazing friendships or amazing family dynamics or workplace dynamics where you're truly able to say in all things you are living at peace as far as it depends on you with the people in your life and there is no animosity or resentment in your heart towards them. And if that's where you're at, God bless you. Thank you. Keep going. Keep trusting in his grace and his power to do that each and every day. For the rest of us, if there is a relationship right now that God is bringing to your mind, don't fight that. What God is revealing right now, he wants to heal. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Right now, in this place, right now, you have an opportunity to ask for his grace, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask for his power, and to ask for his wisdom, to know how to make choices to honor him in that relationship. So Lord, in this place, we want to repent. God, if there are ways that we've lived our lives in selfish ambition and conceit, always complaining and arguing and fighting for our own way, right now, right here, we want to lay that down at your feet and ask for your forgiveness. Ask for your grace. Ask for you to cleanse us and wash us. Make us look like Jesus. Make us love like Jesus. And I pray for the marriages represented in this room. I pray that you would make us selfless. You make us love like Jesus and our marriages will display the gospel for the workplace relationships in this room, for the people who feel so frustrated at their job, they're just thinking about throwing in the towel. Lord, I pray that you would give them everything they need to shine as lights in the midst of that environment. And Lord, we want to bring glory to your name in our relationships. Give us the grace, give us the power to do that. Guys, all around this room, there's communion. Communion is a symbol of a God that loved you enough to go to a cross for you. His blood was spilt so that you could be made right with God the Father, that his body was broken. If you've trusted in Christ as Savior and you've repented of your sins, you are welcome this morning to take that. The only thing I would ask is that before you do, you spend some time praying and asking God to reveal to you any sin in your heart. There's people up here that would love to pray for you to my left if you want to come up and ask for prayer for anything facing you in your life and your circumstances, they would love to pray for you. That's why they're here. Lord Jesus, we invite your Holy Spirit in this room, right here, right now. Have your way in us. Let your kindness lead us to repentance so that we may bring glory to your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.